Alright, and we are back for another edition of Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, as always. And tonight we're joined by a very special guest. We have Dr. Tiffany Yecky Brooks joining us. Hello. Dr. Brooks is the, um, or do you prefer Dr. Yecky Brooks? I prefer Tiffany. That's fine. Tiffany. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. That's good. We're going to get along just fine then. Okay, Dr. Tiffany. Brooks. <laughs> 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 Tiffany is the author of the upcoming book, Gaslighted by God. Kevin and I were fortunate enough to get an advanced reader copy of this book, and I'm reading through it for the second time. Folks, yes. it is a awesome. phenomenal book. Awesome. It is one of the best books that I have ever read on the process of deconstructing your faith. And as we were speaking and visiting just before we hit record on this episode, one of the reasons why I really like this book is because there's a lot of books about deconstruction out there that don't really go into a lot of detail on how a Christian can maintain their faith and reconstruct something better from it. And your book does that in spades. But in any case, I don't want to get too far ahead of everything. Tiffany, thank you so much for being on our podcast. We she appreciate was, you tremendously. She was a Jeopardy contestant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I was. So, so I think we have the absolute smartest guest that we've ever had on our podcast tonight. I'm just saying. I'm a, a proud saying. Jeopardy bronze medalist. We'll put it that way. So <laughs> be, careful, be careful with those superlatives as you throw them around. Well, that's exactly one more bronze medal than I have for being on Jeopardy. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, Tiffany, why don't you tell us some about yourself? Tell our audience a little bit about sure. you, who you are, where you came from, and what it was that prompted you to write this book, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, so I grew up in the Churches of Christ. Um, I went to a Church of Christ college for uh, my undergrad um, degree. And then for my master's degree, I actually moved over to the UK. Um, and my master's thesis is actually on the Gospel of Luke um, and exploring sort of early Christian writing and, and interaction with culture in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and then my PhD is in literature. And so um, I've taught literature and writing um, at the university level. That's That was sort of where I assumed that my career path would take me, but it veered off into writing. And I'm, I'm a full-time author now, but um, I've always cared deeply about matters of faith. And if I, you know, I've, I've said that if I had not been born into the faith tradition that I was, um, I would have wanted to be a preacher. But as a woman, yeah. as we all know, as a woman growing <laughs> up in, you know, in the Churches of Christ, that's just simply not an avenue that is open, available, um, imaginable. Not yet, anyway. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Or at least, you know, it wasn't in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and so um, I took really sort of a roundabout way coming to write about faith, um, partly because, you know, again, that just wasn't something that, that I felt was necessarily open to me. Um, but also because I started, you know, maybe about a dozen years ago or so, I really started being honest about some of the struggles that I was having with my faith and sort of the cognitive dissonance that I had been experiencing between um, what I was taught and what I was taught to believe and told how I should see the world and what I was actually experiencing. And there were a few things that really stood out to me. You know, for a lot of people, um, the deconstruction experience, like it's, it's a thunderbolt moment or it's a road to Damascus yep. moment, you know, yeah. that it, it's something happens and it's, there's that tipping point and everything changes. And for other people, it's very gradual and there's sort of a chipping away and a coming to terms with it. And that's how it was for me. Um, so something that happened very, very early on for me was um, in 2008, 
um, I was teaching at Florida State University and my husband was in the military and he was stationed overseas at the time. And the church that, um, that I was attending had small groups, was starting small groups. And the, um, the format that they followed was that whoever, whatever family hosted the small group that week would provide the meal and then teach the lesson. Um, so we came to the point in the rotation where it was my turn to host and a concern was raised um, that I would be teaching a lesson without a man present. <laughs> and um, what, how should we approach that? Because that, that you know, w- was problematic. Um, and what added insult to injury was that it was actually on a text that I had written about in graduate school. Um, <laughs> That I was somehow, but but still, you're not qualified. I was, yeah, I was not oh, you're qualified just not qualified. On you know, on the basis of you know of my chromosomes, we could um, write it and have someone else read it, and then it would be okay. Right. Well, and that's just it. We we're like, well, do we bring him in via satellite link? Like, would that be allowable? You know, because it it was absurd. Um, <laughs> and at that same time that that discussion was going on, I was teaching the sun also rises in one of my literature classes, and I remember looking out at the classroom. We were talking about the significance of the title, and I was talking to students about the fact that. The title comes from a verse in, in Ecclesiastes. And I had this moment where I just stopped and realized I have more freedom to speak about my faith in a secular college classroom than I do mm. in my own church. Mm. Wow. And yeah. I, just, wow. I just remember standing in front of this lecture hall and, you know, just, just, just my eyes getting big and just having this moment of realization of something is so broken here. Um, that that was that was really kind of one of the first big moments where I realized I I there's no going back. Like something has broken here and I'm not exactly sure how to verbalize it. I'm not sure what it is, but something is broken enough that I'm not going to be able to go back to who I was or what I believed. You hit um, critical mass. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, a few years later, my daughter was uh, two. Um, in fact, she was two years, nine months old, like I can, exactly she was very, very verbal child. Um, and we were worshiping at a church of Christ and, um, my parents were, were there with us and my dad was called to go forward to do the prayer. And she turned to me again, she's not yet three. She turns to me and she goes, mama, how come only man's get to go in front? Oh man. Wow. And I've been, you know, I, we were very, very deliberate about making sure that we didn't, you know, talk about any, you know, any of our crazy liberal talk in front of her, you know, so that she would get her good, you know, foundational. Be- Sound and doctrine. She, I was like, if a child who's two years old recognizes that her church has no place for her, I, I can't do that. It is. That's it a is red flag. Yeah, da- exactly. It is more damaging for me to continue to subject my child to that kind of spiritual abuse of being told or being being shown learning that she does not have a place in the family of God on the basis of her gender. Um, and she was two and she picked that up. And the part of it, of course, for me, was like, you know, at, at that point, I was like, I'm I'm 38. And it <laughs> took me a lot longer to come to that realization, you know, but it's, it's sort of like the old cliche of fish don't ask what's water. Yeah. You yeah. know, when you're so yeah. surrounded by it and it's the air you breathe, you don't question it. And for so long, I had never questioned it. And um, that was another one of those moments that made me realize like, okay, I can't, I can't go back to, you know, whatever my belief system, whatever my comfort level was in that cognitive dissonance that I was maintaining, I, yep. I can't do that anymore because my child is recognizing that something's wrong. 
Um, yeah, it, it's it's very similar for us and our family. It you know coming from the one cup branch of the churches of Christ, the one cup branch is much more nucleated. Um, it's a much more tight knit group than what you see really in the main line. And that's because there, there's so many fewer members. I think nationwide there's estimated to be somewhere between 18 and 23,000 members of the one cup branch of the churches of Christ. And almost everybody knows just about everybody else, or at least, you know, of everybody else. Mm -hmm. So it's a very tight knit group and it's very heavily uh, in this, this, this is going to come across too strong, but it's very heavily policed. Mm -hmm. You might say, Because you have much less leeway to explore the fringes of your faith and to express some of that or to even have conversations about any doubts that you may have, which is in large part what led to us starting this podcast. But yeah, I, a lot of the same stuff are the things that my wife and I, what you just mentioned, Tiffany, my wife and I had a lot of conversations about those same issues, about this generational trauma needing to stop with us in terms of the spiritual trauma that could manifest if we were to remain in that setting. It's not something that was feasible for us anymore. And whenever you're so ingrained in it, like you said, whenever you're a fish, you don't know what water is. Whenever you begin to realize how problematic that entire framework is, we realized we needed to do something. And even then it was a hard decision for us to make. So I, I can... Definitely understand where you're coming from with that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and I grew up with some of the most wonderful, lovely, you know, God fearing, godly, beautiful people, you know, and and nothing against them. But the system that they have propped up, the system that they've been a part of is causing so much harm that hasn't been questioned. And that, you know, it's really difficult to, you know, I've really had to, you know, brace myself knowing the backlash that's going to come from a book like this. You know, but I say that I'm not I'm not out there to bash people. I'm not out to bash people's, you know, spiritual tribes and experience. But we need to we need to be able to talk honestly about these things, you know, coming. Well, I was just going to say the doctoral conditioning that that we've all received and everybody receives, you know, none of us choose our beliefs when we're young. We're they're, they're chosen for us. We're told this is what you're to believe. And of course, we accept it as truth. Um, because that's the only paradigm that we have to work with. And so for many of us, and this is what Lee and I have talked about a lot, we're just discovering how many presuppositions we had. Because it's not just a matter of having one or two presuppositions. It's bias upon bias, presupposition upon presupposition on, upon presupposition. And it's not you're not only pulling back one or two layers, you're pulling back so many different layers of what you were taught to believe. And everyone I have spoken with, well, not everyone, most people I've spoken with, it took them years to finally reach the conclusion that something has to be done. And and that's the way it was for me, too. It wasn't overnight. It wasn't one day I just woke up and thought, well, I really need to change everything. Because when you've been programmed, when you have that what I call doctrinal conditioning, then you're fighting against everything. You're fighting against the way your identity, you're fighting against the way that you were, um, you know, like taught to view, not just your faith in God, but the world. I mean, you're talking about your whole worldview. And even though we all still identify as Christians, my worldview is completely different than it was five years ago, (laughs) six years ago. (laughs) Not even your worldview or your, but your eternal view. Yeah, because we're we're taught so much that, you know, well, if the people who raise these questions or walk away from these beliefs, 
we know what sort of eternal damnation they're facing. And so you're really putting, you're not just putting your, your belief structure or, you you know, your, 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 it's everything you're, yeah. on the line. it's literally like your your, your soul, soul <laughs> yeah you know, those stakes are pretty high so yeah you know, yeah it, and are you well, sure and, you're gonna make this leap and i think one thing i like about your book and i don't want to jump around too much here because uh, we'll get into this but i think uh fear really is what characterized my faith for most of of my adult life it was fear based and you you do address that and that was the way that i understood god is i was ter- i was terrified i was terrified to do anything because if i did one little thing wrong i could lose my salvation i, I may end up going to hell and so it it really ended up i was in an abusive relationship with god mm-hmm. and, and and yep. you you touch on that and i i just really was able to resonate with that because we would call what most Christians have with God, an abusive relationship, if it was between two humans, we would say, you need to get out of that. That's horrible. How can you still be in a relationship with, Mm -hmm. with, with someone like that, who's treating you like that way. And then you read other passages like first John 4, 17 through 19 that say a perfect love cast out fear. And you begin to realize, well, wait a minute, why if a perfect love cast out fear, is my faith nothing but fear? Why is it predicated on nothing but fear? And so I love the title Gaslighted by God because it definitely gets people's attention. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's something. And, and I really like the title. Lee and I, We when you told us the title, I'm like, yes, I, I we've got to have her on, if nothing else, because of the title of the book. I mean, this this goes hand in hand with the type of stuff we talk about all the time it, and it's it's our perceptions of god and how it changes everything um or how it how it dictates everything and when we change our perception of god it changes everything and so i want to just go ahead and ask you this question what really prompted you to write this book i know you told the story of your daughter were there other stories that led to you finally feeling like a book needs to be written like this? I mean, what really got you to that point to say, hey, I want to write a book called Gaslighted by God? Well, you know, it's funny. So the title actually came from, I was um, talking to my therapist one week and I was talking about, you know, just my struggles with, you know, a fear-based religion and what do I do with all this? And I just, it was right towards the end of the session. I just blurted out the line. I said, I feel like I've been gaslighted by God. Mm. And there was this pause and we just kind of looked at each other and she's like, well, that's time. So I'll see you next week. You know, we this thing hanging. Um, Mic but she's wonderful, right? Yeah. And then the following week, I came back and I said, "I think that's the title of a book." She said, "I think you're right." Um, that's awesome. You know, and, and something that that I found as I was um, experiencing my own de- experiencing my own deconstruction or starting to was first of all, you know, I didn't have the words for it for a long time, um, yeah, because. It just wasn't something that was being talked about. And, you know, everything I was being told was, you know, well, you need to pray more, listen to more Christian radio, read your Bible more. Those sources are not going to give us the language for this process. You know, those sources are going to continue to prop up the system that we are deconstructing. Um, And so I immerse myself in that thinking, you know, again, you know, if I just pray a little more, if I just do, you know, as I say in the book, like that situation, that feeling of like, if I can just squeeze a little more Jesus on the situation, you know, it'll get better. And 
I just found that I was getting angrier and angrier. Um, and it really gets worse, that, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, and so yeah. much theology has been reduced to zingers that fit on church marquees. Yep. So, you know, I'll say not one of my finer moments, but um, probably around maybe 2012, I was driving down Highway 39 in Meridian, Mississippi, near the Winn-Dixie. And there was a church that had a marquee sign that said, if God feels distant, who do you think moved? And meanwhile, I had been begging and fasting and praying and crying and doing everything and still, you know, feeling so disconnected and feeling this, this deafening silence from God. And I just started screaming at this church marquee and, you know, I'm at a stoplight yelling very animatedly. And I look over and the people in the car next to me are just giving me this look like, what is this lady doing? But it was just like, it just, the sign was so accusatory. But like that was the message I was being given because that's what we've reduced theology to is to zingers. Yeah. And that is so it's so problematic. And, you know, something I would always tell my students, you know, a lot of times I would have them say, well, why isn't there a book about this? Or why isn't there a character who does this? You know, they would they would always ask these questions. And my answer to them would always be, well, because you haven't written it yet. And finally, you know, it occurred to me as I was struggling and not finding anything that didn't just tell me, well, just pray more and God gets it, you know, um, <laughs> it finally occurred to me and it took a decade, you know, but I realized if there is not a book that's saying these things, maybe I have to take my own advice. Maybe it's because I haven't written it yet. Yeah. And so, um, so that was really the, the thing that, um, made me, I think, take the leap. And then, you know, it was amazing to see things come together as soon as that happened, but it was the phrase really that solidified it. And then I realized that's what all those experiences in the decade previous had been building up to was that moment. Um, and the, the original subtitle of the book was reconciling the God of scripture with a God of experience. Ooh, um, that's, that's a, that's, yeah, I like that's that. a good and, subtitle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, you know, we, we ended up changing the, the subtitle. So now it's reconstructing a disillusioned faith because we wanted to make sure that that idea of reconstruction was present. So people understood this isn't just a book, you know, it's not, it's not a slam book against God, you know, like yeah, we, yeah. we're trying to work through these things, but we did, you know, I used that subtitle as a, as a chapter subtitle instead, because I think that that's what it comes down to is it's the idea of we're reconciling scripture and experience. Yeah. Um, well, and that's and I think that is what is difficult because there are a lot of people out there they want to keep their faith but they also want to be intellectually honest. And when we have been told you have to pick one or the other, what are we going to choose? We're going we're going to choose honesty. We're going to say, "Well, I know this is right. I know this exists." And so if you're telling me I have to deny this in order to choose something that is that is not tangible, then I'm going to choose what I know is real. But when you can bring into the picture a third option and say, wait a minute, you can be intellectually honest. You don't have to deny what is demonstrably real. You don't have to deny your experiences. You can keep those. You can keep truth. You can keep honesty, but you can still also, also maintain faith. Now, that faith is going to have to shift quite a bit. And you have to be able to reframe, and, and, and that's why I like what you do in your book. You don't just tear down, but you also build how to have a, a healthy relationship with God. But it gives people that, that third option that if you still want to keep your faith, which a lot of people do, there, there are Christians out there who 
are they're alarmist and they go, oh, no, no one cares about the truth anymore. No one cares about God. It's not that people care about the truth. Uh, in fact, sometimes that's why they're leaving, because they do care about the truth and they exactly. feel like that they have to choose the truth over God. And uh, Lee and I have discussed that quite a bit on certain topics like science and evolution and those types of things. But you can have both. You can have a healthy relationship with God, still keep your faith and believe in a higher power while being intellectually honest and also maintaining a level of uncertainty as well. That's not in opposition to faith. That is part of faith. And so that that is something that I'm glad you did address in your book is not just tearing down the systems that have been created that have hurt a lot of people, but also building up a healthy system exactly. of faith well, and a know, healthy way to view God. I think so many times, so many of us, we, we keep silent out of fear that it's going to harm our Christian witness. And that if I speak up and I express these doubts, that's going to mm -hmm. hurt God. And as I say in the book, we shouldn't have to lie to be good Christians. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. empathetical. You know, like God yeah, doesn't that. need people. God doesn't need PR agents who spin the gospel to the world. God needs us to be honest and relational, uh, relational, sorry. Um, and it, to me, that's just, that that's such a contradiction that it's, it's so basic. It's so simple when you think about it in those terms, but so many of us have been conditioned to believe we have, these are the right answers. These are the pre-approved responses. This is a Christianese in which I'm supposed to communicate. And these are the accepted phrases that I can pin on to something of, this is a difficult time, but I know God is going to see me through, but I know the Lord is working. You know, whatever yeah. that is, we, we have to put that caveat on the end of it rather than just saying, this is terrible right now. And mm -hmm. it's every bit as bad as, you know, as I think it is. And, and if we're made in the image of God, then you know, emotions. We, we know that God is emotional. We see that throughout the Bible. And so any, any trait that we share in common with God is made in God's image. So why can we not be honest with our emotions? And I, I think so much of that, especially in our tradition within the churches of Christ, is that that experience, that experiential aspect of faith is something that we ignore or we demonize even because you can't lean on your own understanding. We did a, we did an episode about that not too long ago, but experience is ignored. And then whenever the experience that we have doesn't align with what we know to be true, because we've been told this is what is true. We've been conditioned to know that this is the truth. These are the parameters under which truth functions. And if your experience doesn't line up with that, well, then there's something wrong with you. You're the defective one. You're the yep. one that walked away if God exactly. seems distant at this point. And exactly. it's, it's whenever you ignore experience, there's no choice but for cognitive dissonance to begin to manifest itself. Yes. And whenever I read your book and I read the introduction, I was, I was having my car serviced. And I was sitting there reading the introduction and I was hooked whenever you talked about, and I'm, I'm going to go blank on his name, the chimpanzee he that knows. was launched in the space. Yes. yes. And he experienced, you know, he's doing everything he's supposed to do, but because of that equipment malfunction, mm -hmm. you know, he's getting tore up and then he finally snaps. And I mean, who hasn't been there? Right. Who hasn't been on the brink of just losing it? You know, another thing that you discuss, another theme is you, you draw some comparisons between the shell shock that so many veterans experienced in World War One and World War Two, and how what they experienced was completely different than what they were told about the glory of war and the glory of battle. 
in that sense, you see that disconnect between experience and what you're told is truth. Would you mind elaborating some more about that idea? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the, when I teach literature, one of my areas of specialty is the literature of World War I. Um, and, you know, looking at the trench poems and, and the response that came out of that with the modernists. And it's fascinating because, um, <clears throat> so there, there's this sort of famous quote that says, we went to war with Homer in our pockets. And it's this idea of you had a whole generation of young men, especially from the UK, who, who grew up with this classical education, who were, you know, they read the Iliad and they were told about the glories of war and this was all celebrated. Um, and so that's what they were told to expect, like, this is how you fight for king and country and empire and God is on your side and God loves an Englishman and all this stuff, you know. And then they go off to, to the trenches and... Now, World War I was the first modern war. So this is the first time you have tanks, the first time you have aircraft in battle. So, you know, previous generations, when you fought someone sword to sword, you had to look your enemy in the eye before you killed them. And now you can mow down a field of people with a machine gun. You know, in chemical warfare, you can, you know, just, you know, fill a field of mustard gas and just, you know, mow down an entire battalion. So there was a dehumanizing that happened to the soldiers. Um, and so, so many of them who went, you know, thinking that they were going to their father's war, their grandfather's war, or this, you know, again, this beautiful, shining, classic Greco-Roman war that they had been brought up with in their schools. Um, and they got there and it was nothing like that. It was, it was just horrid and, and, you know, just, just carnage like never before. And some of these men went into, you know, what was then called shell shock. Now we know it as PTSD. Um, and, you know, and simply couldn't function. And the, what was so heartbreaking was the response from it was it was thought to be contagious. And so if somebody had PTSD or shell shock, it was thought that then all the other soldiers in the regiment would start to catch it. So an example had to be made of them. So you had um, people who were executed for cowardice, um, executed for what would be a, a, a perfectly reasonable human response to something so unfathomably traumatic as what they were experiencing. Um, and then you also had the people who came home and when they tried to speak of their experiences, people didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear the glorious war stories. They wanted to hear the victories. They wanted to hear the beauty of it and the poetry of it. And they didn't want to hear about the carnage and they didn't want to hear about people's bodies and minds being broken. And that's why we have modernism, you know, Hemingway and, and, Fitzgerald and all these, you know, uh, th these incredible figures. Titans um, of literature. literature. Yeah. Absolutely. They, they are all writing in that modernist strain, which was a response to the dehumanization and the alienation that came from World War I. Um, and so that, you know, something that I quote in the first chapter of the book is um, when Hemingway talks about this idea of when Gertrude Stein tells him, you are all a lost generation. Um, and he says, you know, I, I think I think about that and I think about people who throw that label around and they don't know what it's like to try to drive an ambulance down a mountain when the brakes are shot and you've got it full of wounded people. They don't know what it's like in the trenches. They don't know that. And yet they throw these labels out and tell us that we're lost. And, you know, and so to me, that was such a perfect parallel for, you know, we, we hear so many alarmist preachers talking about how it's the postmodern church and postmodern thinking that's leading to all this deconstruction. What I say in the book is I say, no, we're modernists. We're not postmodernists. We're the modernists. We're looking at the fragmented pieces, the blown out stained glass, and we're trying to assemble it into something that makes sense. And it, it's not going to be what it was before. Um, 
but it takes more courage to try to create something new, to pull those pieces out of the mud and shape together something than it is to walk away. It, it, it takes more yeah. strength. It takes more courage to do that. So I applaud anyone who is willing to, to go through this process because there's a difference between deconstructing faith and deconstructing God. Yeah. Yes. You know, and there, there are people who are going through both and, you know, and I don't fault anyone for where they fall on that scale, but this book is specifically for people who are deconstructing faith and they mm -hmm. want to hold on to God. But whatever that beautiful stained glass image was that they were, so, you know, we went to war with I kiss dating goodbye in the purr of Jabez in our pockets. You know, <laughs> that phrase. And, and what do we do with that when we realize that the story we were sold um, was not, was not the reality that we were facing. And then you come it's back to your churches. Exactly. And then we come back to our churches broken and shell-shocked and we're executed for cowardice. Yeah. And that's so often what happens. We get executed for cowardice because whenever we begin to express how painful our spiritual experience may be in that day and time, maybe it is just a dark night of the soul. Maybe it is deeper than that. Maybe it is something that's that, that cuts to the root of, of our identity because our identity has been built upon this, this construct, this edifice that we have found to be lacking at this point. And then we begin to express that with these people that are supposed to be our brothers in Christ, our sisters in Christ. They're supposed to have our back. They're supposed to be there with us and weeping when we weep and rejoicing with us when we rejoice. And then we turn around and we begin to express some of these doubts that we have, some of these troubles we have. And instead of having someone sit with us and help us through that moment in time, the fingers pointed at us, we're treated as an enemy agent. And then well, that just, that doesn't help. It doubles no, down no. on that shell shock and it mm -hmm. makes things infinitely worse. Right. It makes it to where you feel like you're an island under yourself. You are all alone. And it, it can lead to extreme anxiety and depression in, in a spiritual sense and also in an emotional sense too. Absolutely. You know, when you, when you yeah. see so many people jump in ship, it's, it's easy while you're still on the ship to say, well, look at all of these people who don't care. Look at all these people who are not loyal. There comes a time when you finally have to start asking what's wrong with the ship. Yeah. <laughs> why, yeah. why, why, exactly. if, if, if so many people are jumping mm -hmm. ship, maybe it's not the people that we need to look at. Maybe it's the ship that that we need to start evaluating and reconsidering. Well, why? Why are so many people jumping ship? And when it when it comes to a lot of the examples you use in your book, because you go through and talk about different pers uh, perceptions of God, if you will, perspectives of God, and 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 you know, I think that everyone's going to be able to relate to at least multiple examples. You know, they may not be able to re relate to every single one, and that's why I'm glad you did an exhaustive list of of different per perceptions of God because it gives no matter where you're at, no matter what you were raised in, what belief system you were taught, you're still able to to pin point someone's experience or at least something that they can identify with, I believe. And that's why your book is so powerful because you're not saying choose scripture or your experience, going back to what we were talking about earlier, you're showing how throughout scripture experience is vital to faith. And one of the points, and I forgot what chapter it's in, and this, this isn't, um, it's some of the notes we discussed, but I'm, I have confidence you'll be you'll be ready for uh, for this question. Um, when you look at uh, passages in the Old Testament specifically about the judges and how God 
appointed certain judges uh, to help Moses and leaders to help Moses, which Moses had to beg for um, <laughs> and ask God for. But when you when you see those being appointed, it's to help determine cases because the law was not just explicitly clear where you just go to it and it gives you one answer that the Bible is there not to always give us a yes or no answer, not to always be like a magic eight ball that we just shake and say, okay, God, what do I need to do? And you were talking about earlier, you're, uh, how you're just screaming at that billboard. Like, no, God, you're the one who's moved. I haven't moved. I'm fasting. I'm praying. I'm reading. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm reaching out to you. Where are you? And, and I think we've all, at least oh, those of us who are listening to this podcast, <laughs> who've gone through those uh, similar deconstruction uh, or deconstructing processes, we've all had similar experiences. We've all had that moment where we're like, where are you? I, I even myself, I remember just, I didn't feel peace in my life. And I had questions. And I thought to myself, well, the Bible says I should have peace. So what am I doing wrong? And I just just remember crying and praying to God, why are you not giving me peace? And if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, why are you not making it clear to me what I'm supposed to be doing? You know, why am I not feeling peace? And and those are things that are real. Those are those real moments where you faith goes from sitting in a pew at church because that's what you've always done to now being faced with what do I really even believe anymore? You know, this is yeah. now real faith. I am now maturing into having to figure out what I really believe. And that gets into that spiritual anxiety that you discuss in your book. And I, I want to just ask if you can elaborate on that a little bit, because you do talk about the effects of spiritual anxiety and what it's like to have spiritual anxiety. I have suffered that. I've suffered mm -hmm. both uh, spiritual and I guess you could say non-spiritual anxiety and probably just a lot of the anxiety I've experienced in my life is because of my spirituality. And here, this is Same. a system This is a system that's supposed to be giving me peace. It's supposed mm -hmm. to be giving a peace that passes all understanding. I'm like, I just wish I could understand peace, right? Much less something that surpasses. Just give me a peace yep. I can understand because right now I, don't, I ain't got nothing. I don't have any peace in my life. And, and so can you unpack that a little bit for us as far as yeah. spiritual anxiety and how that affects Christians? Absolutely. Well, I want to go back to, to kind of set the stage real quick to something you mentioned earlier was that idea of the courts of, of the law of, of mitigating that. We have something that we've lost in modern Christianity is the idea of faith being a process that that there's a natural give yeah. and take and an ebb and flow that we've reduced it into a state of being. It's something you have or you don't. And really yeah. the way that Jesus understood faith, the way anyone who grew up in that tradition, the way Jews still understand faith is that faith is a conversation with God. Yeah, you know, come, view, let us yeah. reason together, you know, and, and we look at and the idea that faith is a dialogue. And we've, we've taken that away and we've really spun it to people as if, well, if you are not accepting, you know, whatever hand you've been dealt, if you're not accepting that with a smile and grace and you're, you're just calmly accepting it, then that's not faith. You know, faith shouldn't be questioning. Um, and, and so we've, we've really done a disservice to the concept of faith um, in terms of how we have classified it as like sort of in you're in or you're out rather than allowing it to be something that expands and contracts naturally. 
Um, yeah. So I, we're, we're I children kinda, of the enlightenment. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Our I'm faith like, is very Western, that. not Eastern. Oh, yes. Specifically Scottish and Scottish rationalism. Like it's so interesting, like you can kind of almost pinpoint where these traditions come from. And oh, we, yeah. but we spin that as like, no, it's eternal capital T truth rather than, you know, actually until it's not, you know, no, but I think the thing with spiritual anxiety is the general response is either to explain it away, you know, and say, well, you know, that's not valid because these scriptures tell you that this is how God cares for you or to say something's wrong with you for feeling that way. Well, neither one of those responses is going to provide comfort to the person who still feels that way. Okay. You can, you can quote all the scriptures you want to at me that tell me, and there is a difference between quoting scriptures to someone and quoting them at someone. Um, like you can quote all the scriptures you want to at me about why I shouldn't feel this way. But if I'm still feeling that way, all I'm good, all that's going to do is make me feel worse and make me question what is wrong with me and what's broken in me. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, what I try to point out is that our job as Christians isn't to fix the other person. You know, we have such a, a rightness complex in our faith, um, you know, that we, yeah. we're so afraid <laughs> to say, I don't know, or just, you yeah. know, there's that old song, let the mystery be like, no, that is, nope. that is We'll go not. find the answer if we don't have it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we have and to do it by Sunday morning. <laughs> right. Yes. And even if it requires logical gymnastics to get there, we will have to provide it. You know, we're not okay with saying, I don't know. Um, we want that rightness. We want that, the, the blessed assurance. Um, but our job isn't to fix the other believer. Our job is to hold space for them so that they can, they can work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, there's a reason that scripture is in there too, you know? And so like so many people treat scripture and there's something I say in the book that they treat it like a bandage that they can just slap onto someone else's um, condition and then just act like that's first aid. Um, and Tiffany, I, I, my battery is running low <laughs> so, <laughs> on my laptop, so I may have to hop off in a minute and grab a cord. Sorry. Would it be okay if we pause now so that you could do that? That would be great. If you don't Folks, mind. we're going to pause. We will be right back. All right. We're back. We are plugged in. <laughs> Battery's good to go. We are good. So we're discussing spiritual anxiety and let's keep the conversation flowing. Go yeah. ahead. So Tiffany, what I was going to say is that there was someone struggling with anxiety and worry at a church. And, um, and it, this is something that I had personal experience with uh, because it was someone who told me about the story and they said that they just went to their preacher and said, you know, I, I need help. I'm struggling right now with worry. And they said, well, you know, come down front and we'll pray for you. And, and I'll also tell you the solution to your problem. Well, do you know what the solution was that the preacher gave the member? What? He told her to read Matthew chapter six. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus said, don't worry. Uh, and everything, everything's going to be okay. Just don't worry. That's the solution. Read Matthew Bye. six and just stop worrying and everything's going to be okay. And it's that over worry and anxiety. It's cured now. There yeah. Yeah. It's, exactly. it's, it's just that oversimplification that Your causes a lot of anxiety. Happens. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that, and that causes so many issues because we yeah. think, well, if it is that easy, why is it not why able to fix it? me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. No. And that's heartbreaking. And, you know, I mean, something that I applaud the Catholic church for is that they recognize this and they call it scrupulosity. And they recognize that there are people who, um, some people who just are naturally anxious people, some people who um, have conditions like obsessive compulsive disorder, um, where this, you know, really manifests in a different kind of way, but they actually have priests 
specifically trained um, to work with people who struggle with scrupulosity um, and, you know, saying, well, what if I have an impure thought between, you know, the moment that I stand up from the pew and the moment I go forward to take communion, like then suddenly I'm no longer, you know, but, but there are people for whom that's real. Yeah. And so then their, their faith is no longer a source of joy or life or, you know, it, it's none of those things. It's, it's this constant process of, 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 anxiety and fear and questioning and doubt and struggle and, you know, worry, being worried about eternal damnation. And that's, that's not the life in abundance that we were promised. And so I really applaud the Catholic church for recognizing that this is an issue. Um, there's actually a wonderful book that I, I mentioned in the footnotes um, of the book called Understanding Scrupulosity, and it's by a priest named Thomas Santa. So, you know, for, for your readers, if they, if this resonates with them. If that sounds like something that they, you know, have experienced, I would really recommend uh, that they check out this book just called, again, it's called um, Understanding Scrupulosity, but it speaks to that exact issue because it's so real and it's so, um, it's so consuming for people mm -hmm. who are trapped in it. And we don't know how to handle that. You know, we, we just say, well, the Bible says, don't worry. So don't worry. Yeah. And that's if only so it were that simple, wildly incomplete. And it's heartbreaking because, because that just leaves people, it, it, it creates a cycle and it leaves yeah. people feeling more damaged and farther away from God and more broken. Well, the Bible says, don't worry. Right. I'm worrying. Right. Okay. So I'm violating what the scripture said. Jesus said not to worry. Exactly. Okay. Well, why am I worrying? What's the My issue here? And you begin to become consumed with that. Yes. And My now I'm going to go to hell because I'm worrying. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Your anxiety becomes a sin. You know, your desire to please God at such an extreme level now is the source of your damnation. I mean, that's it. it it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And we know through psychology that at least we do now and through anthropology that if you want to perpetuate worrying, worry about worrying. Right. I mean, that's right. that's the, right. the you know, and, and that's something that I've learned myself, because I used to struggle with anxiety and panic attacks. And the more that I worried about the panic attacks, the worse they were. The more I worried about my anxiety, the worse it was. And finally, I got to the point where I'm like, I don't care. Like, I'm just going to worry. And the when I when I quit worrying about worrying, like if if I worry, I worry. It started slowly going away because it it wasn't like oh no, I've I've got to stop doing this right now. It's like it's okay, it's okay to worry, it's okay to be afraid, it's okay to have these feelings. And when we put it in a legalistic sense of you, well, well, you're going to hell if you keep worrying because the Bible says do not worry, and it's a sin to worry that's not going to help anyone. That's going to lead someone into a, a tailspin of, and really ultimately lead a lot of people into insanity, or it's going to lead them to the point where they want nothing to do with Christianity. And when atheism or agnosticism or, or, you know, at least skepticism at best, when all of these things lead to a, a better life than Christianity, who wouldn't want to choose that over Christianity? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No. And I think that's one of the things that, um, that a lot of people struggle with is, realizing that like what do you do when you feel healthier when you're no longer worrying about pleasing god yeah i mean that's kind of terrifying if you're you know when you realize hold on my mental health is better when i'm no longer thinking about god 24/7 when i'm lo no longer consumed with my salvation i'm actually a healthier person yeah you know <laughs> that, that that in itself leads to a whole new set of worries yeah. Um, because suddenly, you know, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, what, what does that mean then about 
this whole belief system that I've built my entire life and, and staked eternity on. What yeah. does that mean when I've detached from it and suddenly I'm healthier, I'm a better person, I am more loving. And that's, that's also something that, that I really wanted to speak to in the book, because I think that's an experience that's really uncomfortable, but a lot of us have, have had and maybe don't want to <laughs> admit to. And what what yeah. do you do with those feelings? Because that's, that, that doesn't feel good. Yeah. Well, why, yeah would, why, would no. I, why would I want to take a happy, happy <clears throat> atheist and turn them into a miserable Christian? Right. Right. It, yeah, right. exactly. Well, and I think so much of what drives so much of that anxiety, because I struggle with anxiety myself. It's so much better than it used to be. I was, I had anxiety when I was a kid and didn't realize that's what, that's what it was. It manifested itself with nail biting and mm. cuticle picking and digestive distress and all manner of other unsavory symptomatologies. And it's far better now than it was, but what before I began that process of spiritual detoxification of deconstructing my faith. I had noticed that I had become much more anxious again. And I really think that at its root, a lot of the spiritual anxiety that many Christians experience, not all, but many it's, I think it's rooted in a legalistic faith. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a big driving factor behind that anxiety because you're so focused on being right and you're so focused on being right in God's sight and making sure you have all the right answers to life's questions, making sure that you're rightly dividing the word of truth so that you can be a workman or woman that needeth not be ashamed. And you get so consumed with that and so wound up in it, you begin to wonder, where are my blind spots? Do I have any blind spots? If I'm going to be honest with myself, of course I have blind spots. Well, what have I missed? You know, what if I've missed this over here? What if I've missed some critical doctrine or crucial perspective that I don't currently have? If I've done that, is my soul at jeopardy in this point? And probably my favorite chapter in your book is, I think it's chapter five or six. I, I don't remember which number it is, but you have a chapter devoted to legalism. That's my favorite chapter because that's that was the biggest struggle that I have had. And I really appreciate how you address that in your book. And one of the things in that, that very first paragraph, you start by talking about Jonah mm -hmm. and you discuss Jonah and how he's called to go to Nineveh. And what jumped out at me, and this, this blew my mind whenever I realized this, a lot of people have a hard time moving out of legalism because they have a hard time perceiving that God may be different than their perception of who he is. And you talk about that with Jonah. I never thought about that on the flip side. I mean, I realized that yeah. my perception of God was an unhealthy perception, but Jonah's entire resistance to going to Nineveh and preaching to these Assyrians that were, you know, Israel's mortal enemy, they were responsible for the diaspora of the 10 Northern tribes. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't want to do this. This is Israel's mortal enemy. And God's telling him to go do this, that violated his perspective and his understanding of who God was supposed to be. Right. And as a touchstone, as a jumping off point of legalism, I just thought it was absolutely brilliant how you kick that off. And I was wondering if you might share with the audience just a little bit more about how you unpack that and, and some of your perspectives on that and how you deal with that in the book. Absolutely. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually one of my favorite chapters too, um, because that is, 
that's something I've struggled with as well is, you know, is legalism both kind of externally. And then I also touch in the chapter on like internal legalism, you know, sometimes the restrictions that we put mm -hmm. on ourselves as well and how, how we deal with that, you know, and as we all know, legalism is ultimately um, it's a form of control, you know, it's attempt, an attempt to control the behavior of others by restricting choices or causing them to live in fear of making a wrong move. But the problem is what we've done with it is that it's also an attempt to control God by forcing God into a position of acknowledging us or finding pleasure in the extra effort. And so it's not just that we're manipulating other people with legalism, but we're trying to manipulate mm -hmm. God as well. Interesting. And oh, when, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, 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 it's, wow. Yes. You're blowing my mind. <laughs> But it's like, that's just it. Like, we don't always think of it in those terms. And when you stop and actually realize what the end goal is with legalism, that you're putting God in your debt, you're trying to make God have to acknowledge this, then it gets, it gets really uncomfortable really fast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that, that I talk about is, you know, legalism is putting extra restrictions on people. Um, and Jesus actually... It, Jesus does this as well, which at first I remember I was reading, you know, kind of taking this lens to it. I, I had this moment of, of deep discomfort when I was reading the Beatitudes and realized that Jesus was also putting extra restrictions on people. You know, when he says that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you're liable to judgment, you know, and, and that basically being angry with someone is, is akin to killing them. And I was like, whoa, Jesus, hold on, you're being legalistic. Like that's, that's really uncomfortable. But what I realize is when you read the New Testament, whenever Jesus expanded the definition of sins, it was always to protect the other person rather than to elevate the individual. So legalism is yeah. about raising ourselves up in God's eyes. And whenever Jesus puts those extra things or narrows definitions, he's always doing it for the sake of protecting someone else. So, you know, he sought to keep people from carrying grudges that would lead to violence. He, um, you know, yeah. talking about if you sin, you know, j just looking at a woman with lust is akin to, you know, committing adultery. So he sought to honor women by acknowledging that men were responsible for their own lustful thoughts. He sought to to limit divorce, not to keep tr people trapped in dangerous circumstances, but to make sure that they could not be women could not just simply be abandoned at the mm -hmm. whim of, yep. of someone else. You know, and so anytime you see Jesus place restrictions on, you will always see that it is because he's trying to protect yep. the powerless. Yeah. And that to me is such an interesting way of how we should be thinking about um, when, when we, how we handle legalism, you know, if, yeah. if we all have that tendency, we all want a little bit of extra credit with God, you know, we're, we all kind of want to be the, the very best Christian, you know? Um, and when we're doing that, are we doing that to elevate ourselves or are we doing that to elevate other people? Um, yeah. And so where, like God wanted Jesus, Jesus's expansion of the law beyond the text was, was about, um, he wanted us to take on the weight of forgiveness and self-control and temperance and fidelity and love. We, he wanted us to take that burden onto ourselves and not to pass the burden on to other people. 
And that's what legalism is. It's elevating ourselves and it's passing a burden on to other people. And we, we break down a couple of scriptures, like a story with Saul and Jonathan and Honey and sort of an odd, obscure story that we don't really discuss much in Sunday school. It's um, brilliant, you know, though. It's brilliant the way you story. go into that. Thank you. Yeah, I loved um, all the passages yeah, like, you used in the, in the book to demonstrate your points, that this isn't just something you're yes. coming up with because you're like, oh, I don't like what the Bible says, so I'm just going to come up with a different right. theology. You're using the Bible. You're, you're using the Bible to say this, this is in the Bible. This is actually how the Bible behaves. These are stories we read in the Bible. Yeah, one of the most important passages for me, and because so, I honestly, I struggled with that idea at the beginning of this was, you know, I don't want this to be that I'm just creating God in my own image. You know, yeah. so yeah. I was very, very prayerful of sitting down to begin this. And one of the passages that, that stood out to me is in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And they're like, oh, well, you know, some people say this and the, you know, Pharisees say this and they go back and forth. And he goes, no, who do you say that I am? Yeah. And it was yeah. so fascinating to me that here's Jesus saying, I don't care what the popular theologians of the day are saying. I don't care what your church structure is telling you. You, who do you say that I am? Who have you experienced me to be? You who are the people who are walking with me every day and seeing me interact. Who do you say that I am? And then when Peter makes that pronouncement, Jesus blesses him for it. He doesn't say, ah, you know what, Peter, that wasn't in scripture. And so (laughs) you need to walk that one back there and, you know, give me a chapter and verse citation. You know, Jesus praises him and he says, the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you. And, you know, especially from our tradition, we get real uncomfortable when we start talking about the Holy Spirit because that's kind of squishy. Like that's, you know, that's... Well, moving on. Yeah, the Holy Spirit retired in the first century. The Holy Spirit's right, in Tahiti right. with a Hawaiian shirt, sipping back on pina coladas. Well, you know. Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, no, and, and in the privacy of their own beach, too, because, uh, you know, you don't want to make anybody stumble by. Uh, by what could appear like you're sure. you're drinking a, a yeah <laughs> pina colada. One thing, uh, real quickly, I was just going to bring up because I discovered this today for myself um, when I was studying. Um, I was having a discussion with someone about the phrase "sound doctrine," and I'm sure we've all heard that mm-hmm. thrown around. Oh, it's oh, yeah. you know it's all about sound doctrine. And what I found interesting, I thought, well, I, I've really never just done. I mean, I've done a, a word study on the word, you know, sound. And doctrine, but I wanted to do more of a contextual study. And it fascinated me to find out that when you look at the word sound doctrine in in the context, which go figure, right? Um, what you find is that it's speaking specifically about making sure that you're rebuking those who are trying to bind where God hasn't bound. Mm. And and this is, I just want to read this. So this is in Titus Lee. We're probably going to have to do like a separate episode on what is sound doctrine. I think that would be really cool. But That'd be amazing. Um, but we'll so, put it on so the list. I, I just want to read this. Titus chapter one, verse seven, it's talking about an overseer and how they need to be sound in the faith and teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who are not sound in doctrine. And uh, it says, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthiness uh, or the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, they're empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party binding on those uh, circumcision. 
what's interesting about this, he goes on to say, uh, they must be silent since, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And then he goes on to talk about it. When you look at this passage, and this isn't the only passage in First Timothy, it speaks of sound doctrine being anything contrary to what Jesus taught, is that sound doctrine is not what we think it is most of the time. It's not talking about specific church dogmas. It, it's talking about those who would bring in a different gospel and try to take away the freedom by oppressing those, by bringing in another uh, yoke and, and place that on them. And you see that in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul said that not even for an hour did we allow these false teachers to teach. Well, what were they teaching? They were trying to bind circumcision. When you look at the phrase sound doctrine, these are the context that that, that phrase and it word finds itself in. But most of us don't know that because we have been trained in legalism. And so we can't help but read into these words. Oh, well, that's saying if you use an instrument of music, you're not teaching sound yeah. doctrine. If you're allowing a woman to preach, you're utilizing while not realizing we are the ones by teaching that who are not abiding in sound doctrine. I mean, it's just super ironic. That's fantastic. I love that. I mean, I, I hate that, but I, I love that that application that you have made of it. No, that's and you, and you think about like Romans 14, like do not let, you know, what is good be spoken of or is evil and what is evil be spoken of. And, and like we twisted that to mean, of course, like, well, you know, don't let people say that without what you're, you know, when you're doing this good thing, don't let them say that it's terrible. And don't let people say that, t you know, these terrible things are good. Like we want to really want to focus on the second part of yeah. that. Like, don't let people, yeah. you know, elevate, you know, cause we spin it's like, it's all orgies and hedonism. Like, and that's <laughs> what they want to come in and promote, you know, and, and we're missing the part of it of saying yes, but we all, we're also not supposed to let people talk, say is evil, the good that we're trying to do. Yeah. You know, like that's the part of it that we want to miss. We want to keep those those sinners out. But what we we're missing the part of saying, don't let people say that when you are trying to help people, when you are giving a voice to the voiceless and power to the powerless, when you are trying to figure out what true sound doctrine is, don't let them say that's evil. That's mm -hmm. just as unacceptable as saying, you know, people who are saying that something yeah. that's truly evil like, is good. Rebuke them. Rebuke people who are trying to bind these yeah. things. You know, don't don't let right. it don't tolerate it. Don't tolerate that kind of false doctrine. And that even to me, that sounds so weird because that I was going back to that word programming. I was programmed to read into these words and phrases what, I, you know, certain certain ways that. This is the only way you can see that. And then you start yeah. reading the context and wait a minute. He was telling them to rebuke the people who were coming in and teaching that you had to be circumcised to be saved. And the phrase, uh, this is another just interesting tidbit on legalism. The phrase traditions of, of men, when Jesus uses that, every single time, and even in the New Testament, uh, it's used in, in some of Paul's epistles, every single time without exception, there's no exception to this rule, Every time that phrase is referring to people who were binding others, other uh, on others, binding actions on others, never once is it talking about coming in and trying to do something within your freedom. It's trying to bind where God every single time. Wow! But anyway, I, I, legalism, legalism. That's that's where I, you know, I get on my, uh, you know, soapbox when it comes to the issue of legalism. He gets passionate. He starts pounding that pulpit, starts pounding <laughs> that desk. You hear it come through on the microphone. But the result of that legalism is that spiritual anxiety that we talked about before. 
the result of that legalism is a faith that's predicated upon having all the right answers instead of knowing Jesus and expressing that relationship with Jesus through our love for neighbor and our love for fellow man. And it leads to a very unhealthy, a very toxic manifestation of faith whenever legalism is allowed to take root and grow and manifest itself. And I, I really appreciate how you deal with that, with, with that in the book. But I know we've been talking now for about an hour and we don't want to take up too much of your time. So with that in mind, I'll just, I, I know there's maybe one or two things Kevin may want to touch on very quickly, but as we begin to bring this conversation to a close, one of the things I really appreciate about your book, and we mentioned this earlier, is that in discussing that process of deconstructing one's faith and one's perception of God and who he is, one of the things I really appreciate is that you give practical advice and practical tools on how one can begin to reconstruct their faith in a healthier, more Christ-centered, more biblical way. And deconstruction is kind of a hot buzzword. I know I mentioned on the podcast before that I prefer the term spiritual detoxification just because deconstruction is one of those words that's used over and over and over again. It's kind of like the word woke. It's been used so much. It's just, it can mean anything you want it to mean. Um, but, But that being the case, this is something that has really become more of a popular idea, maybe even idiom within Christ within Christian circles. Mm -hmm. Where do you see this deconstruction trend leading within Christendom, within Christianity? Do you see a positive endpoint somewhere, maybe a light at the end of the tunnel? Because there's a lot of hand-wringing going on in Christianity that that numbers are dropping, church attendance is going down. We, we're seeing the decomposition of the edifice of Christianity within Western society today. Do you think it's all doom and gloom? Do you think that maybe there's a, a positive thing that can come from this? Is there a potential for growth there? What, what are your thoughts on that? So my first thought on that is that Jesus was a deconstructionist. You know, Jesus yeah. was willing to call out the toxic religious leaders of his day. You know, Jesus was willing to say the way we're doing this misses the point and it misses everything that this was supposed to be about and we need to do better. And yeah. so first of all, I think this idea of viewing deconstruction as, well, that's it. This is the end of the Western church because, you know, people are just tearing it down. No, this, our faith was rooted in deconstruction. You know, so, so first of all, I think that, that it's <laughs> a great point. <laughs> some of that fear. Yeah. I mean, and you know who else was a deconstructionist? Paul, you know, who else? Yeah. Martin Luther, like, you know, go through <laughs> history and like, like our whole faith tradition, you know, Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell, deconstructionists, you know, like our whole faith tradition and lineage and, and just the, the, the Christianity itself is a deconstruction of toxic binding religious traditions that were not serving the health and welfare of the people who, who you know, God loved and, and wanted to wanted to see live in, you know, have life abundant. So first of all, I will want to throw out there that, you know, I know I don't think this is the end of Western Christianity because this is, you know, this is the root of Western Christianity. I just think we're seeing it take a new form. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I think really just the thing to remember is that the cornerstones of Christ, the, the cornerstone of Christ's example was to elevate humanity over dogma. Yeah. And so that, you know, that hasn't changed. And so 
it's still true now that that God values someone's humanity over a spiritual checklist. And I think as, you know, yes, church numbers are dropping, but that's not counting for people who are going into home churches. Yeah. And yeah. people who are, you know, and the, the home church movement is on, you know, on a huge upswing or people who are taking, I have so many friends who are taking a break from church right now, you know, because they said like, I still believe in faith. I'm still teaching my children about faith, but there is not a healthy place for us to worship right now. And so we're taking a Sabbath to stop and reevaluate our beliefs so that when we re-enter the faith community, we're doing it in one that, you know, where we can worship with a clear conscience about yeah. you know yes. what's being taught and what's being embraced. And so, you know, I, I think it's there's a huge shift, a seismic shift, um, but I don't think it's a crumbling. I think it's a realignment. And I think we're all asking together, you know, can't the church do better? And, and shouldn't the church do better? And how can the church do better? And then we're actually answering those questions. And I think that's the beauty of it is, you know, there's a there's a Jewish spiritual practice of where you bring a question, but you have to also provide an answer to it Um, and that you're not allowed to raise this question in this dialogue unless you have also provided an answer. And I think that that's what what so many Christians are doing right now of we are raising these questions that previous generations maybe, you know, offered a, a, a scriptural answer to, so to speak, you know, as we discussed, like there, there was a rightness but there wasn't necessarily the action that followed it or they would shrug it, you know, just kind of shrug it off and say, well, you know, we don't know, but let's look at this that we do know. And I think what a lot of Christians are doing now is looking at some of these bigger questions and saying, you know, yes, why is there pain in the world? I don't know, but it's not enough to say, well, because it's a fallen world. Why is there pain in the world? I don't know. So what can I do to lessen that pain? What can I do yes. to be a co-creator with Christ? What can I do to make the great, you know, arc of the story of the universe? You know, as Martin Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, that it, it leads towards justice. Like, how do we make the arc of the story of humanity lead towards towards redemption? What is my role in that? And I think no. that that's the question people are asking, but then also seeking to answer right now. Yeah, and that, that's, that's not captured beautiful. in surveys. No, and it isn't, and you're exactly right, and and that that's a healthier manifestation of faith than going sitting in a pew for an hour and a half every Sunday, or maybe more if you're going to three services a week or however many else. It's an active faith. It's a practical faith, and I think that that is really at at maybe the heart of why there is a decline in church attendance is because that while it's it, it can be valuable. And while it can serve a purpose, what purpose is it really serving? You know, what is the practical good that that does? How is that bringing about justice in the world? How is that an expression of love to neighbor? How does that manifest itself in that pure and undefiled religion that James talks about, that you talk about in your book of, of walking humbly with your God? It's, you know, to kind of butcher the passage over there in Micah, but <laughs> It's, it's, yeah. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Hey, later hey, sponsor. That was good. No, that was good. Yeah, I'm like, buddy. I'm like, oh, that's what he was trying to say. No, I'm just teasing. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> anyway, but, but the point being though, no, I, th- I think you're spot on with that. Well, uh, Kevin, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, you know, Christianity should be more attitudinal than it is behavioral. And because mm-hmm. when you, when you look at scripture, it, there are a lot of behaviors that are reflective of the culture 
But the attitude is embedded underneath that behavior. And that's what, what is to continue. Um, and because I had someone, when I was talking to him about how I understand scripture in the New Testament and how, you know, the, the, the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament, it's situationally and culturally fluid. And they said, oh, so you just think anything goes. And I said, no, I don't think anything goes. I said, in fact, quite the opposite. I said, when we when you focus so much on the behavior, what in, you, you're, you're allowed to have anything go because you can, I mean, look at what all has happened in the past because we have focused on just behavior. We've justified behaviors that if we focused on the attitude, those behaviors could have never been justified. I mean, if, if we would have focused on the attitudes and the fruit of the spirit, we would have no Christian could have ever justified Chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. That, that, that could have never happened because we would have understood, well, yep. wait a minute, if I'm really bearing the fruit of the Spirit and I'm treating others the way I want to be treated and I'm love does no harm to a neighbor, Romans 13, 10, and this is how I'm supposed to live, then there's, then there's no way that these behaviors could have ever happened. Attitudes actually protect us from destructive behaviors, but yet we have focused so much only on the behavior and have abandoned the attitudes that you have people who attend church and they're racist and they don't care. A lot of times they're not closeted racist. They're bla- In fact, they're, they get their racism from yeah. church. And, and yeah. you see these types of things that are happening. They don't care about the marginalized. They don't care about the poor. And people say, well, that's a generalization. It is a generalization. And it's one I've experienced over and over and over and over and over. And one I was even a part of. Because the focus of my Christianity was on behavior. It was behavioral management. It had nothing to do with the attitude behind it. And 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 I just think that when you look at what you're talking about, I think you're spot on. I think you hit the, the nail on the head because it's not that people are leaving God. It's they're leaving an Americanized or at least Westernized version of God and faith. And they're realizing, well, wait a minute, this isn't working. The system is invalidating itself. <laughs> and so if it's invalidating itself, that cannot be true Christianity. And as you put it, they're taking these sabbaticals to try to figure out what what do I need to do? What what do I believe in? And we did home church for a while. We're at, a, at an, Episcopal, uh, an Episcopal church now. Um, Lee loves that. He uh, he loves the Episcopals, but we're we're. At I actually a, do. The Episcopals Christ. are awesome. They're really cool people. <laughs> but they're, they're know, like they're like the hippies of uh, Christianity. I love them. <laughs> I'm not a hippie. I'll put it out there. Yeah. But uh, no, it, it is. It's it's your your your. I'm fi- I'm having to find who is living out a Christocentric understanding of the Bible, not just who is holding to certain tenets that I agree with. Who's living? Who, who's actually bearing the fruit of the Spirit and living out the attitudes of what Jesus taught? That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that fruit, and and that's where we found it. But I think people are finding it in different ways. It may not be the ways that they were taught, but they're not leaving God. Now, some people are. Um, I think they're leaving a false understanding of God by and large. But and understanding you know, they've been gaslighted in the believing in. Oh, there you go. That would mean gaslighted by God. That would be a really, really good book. But <laughs> I think your book is vital. I think this is a, a wonderful time for you to have written this book because there's so many people who are going through this. And I mean, our podcast is a testimony to that. The amount of people who reach out to us on a Absolutely. weekly basis who are still stuck 
and they just don't know what to do. And this is a book I know Lee's already been sharing with other people as far as just promoting it. And I have as well of, of getting the word out there. So tell us a little bit more about where people can find this book, exactly when it comes out and if they can go ahead and pre-order it and those types of things. Absolutely. So the book is available for, for pre-order now. Um, the print version will be available on May 26th. Um, so you can order it on you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, Christian Booksellers Online, um, anywhere. The audiobook, um, which I just uh, recorded about two weeks ago, that should be available, um, I believe, May 3rd. Uh, thereabouts, it should be available on Audible. Um, so depending on what your preference is for how you receive a book, the print was, book was supposed to be out May 3rd, but due to COVID-related delays at the printers, uh, that had to get pushed back. And that's just, you know, that's the world in which we live right now. Yep. Um, but the uh, the audiobook should still be released on that original uh, release date of May 3rd. And then the print book again, um, May 26th. Unless you're, unless you're me and Lee. Unless you're, yeah, <laughs> you're the and you get the advanced copies. Um, but yeah, so you can, you know, again, anywhere you, you get books, it's available, you know, support your local bookstores. Um, but uh, you can also order it online and it's, uh, it will hopefully be, you know, my prayer with this book from the beginning is that it will land in the hands of the people who need it most. So I think it will. I think you're going to be blessed for this work. And you've written a couple of other books, too. Do you want to say something about those that you've co-authored? Sure, yes. Um, so I have uh, one called Espionage and Enslavement in the, Re in the Revolution, uh, which is a fascinating nonfiction uh, historical book about an enslaved woman um, on Long Island in the 18th century. And she her possible her escape um, during the war, her possible spying for the Americans, and she her, uh, she's connected with the Culper spy ring. Or, um, well, Robert Townsend, who's one of the characters in the story, is connected with the Culper Spy Ring, which a lot of people are familiar with from the television show Turn. It's um, a great so that's show. That's a fascinating book. Um, that's Espionage and Enslavement in the Revolution. Um, and I uh, co authored that with a historian named Claire Bellagio. Um, I have uh, a book called Limitless with the Paralympic gold medalist Mallory Wegeman. She's got a phenomenal story about um, just redefining limitations and um, how you. Uh, basically rise above circumstance um, to, you know, kind of set your own rules for life. And then fear is a choice with uh, James Conner, who's the uh, NFL running back. And it's about his uh, struggle with cancer uh, when he was diagnosed with cancer while he was in college um, and his journey through faith um, as he, as he dealt with that and then uh, got um, drafted into the NFL. So kind of an amazing story of healing and recovery and, and faith there. So they're all wonderful books. They're all out. And uh, yeah, I'd encourage, um, you know, anyone who's interested to pick, awesome. up, pick up any one of them because they're all fascinating reads. Fantastic. Yeah. Tiffany, one more thing, and then we'll go ahead and get signed okay. off here because I know you've got a family you want to get back to and other things that need to be handled. Probably a bunch of other interviews you're going to need to get knocked out prior to this book's release as well. Um, where can people find out more about you on the internet? Where can they find more information about you? Um, you can go to my website, which is tiffanyyeckybrooks.com. That's T-I-F-F-A-N-Y-Y-E-C-K-E-B-R-O-O-K-S. Tiffanyyeckybrooks.com. My website is there. You can get information um, about my, my upcoming books, um, having me as a speaker, that sort of thing. I'm also on Facebook, um, Tiffany Yecky Brooks PhD. I'm the only one on there with that name. <laughs> so there you go. Find that way. Um, but you can find that. And um that's yeah, that's probably the best way to kind of keep track of what's what I've got coming out, what's coming next and some of the uh, the media and discussions coming out around this book. 
Fantastic. Well, I think I can definitely speak for Kevin in saying this has been a treat of an interview. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on our little program here. I mean, it's growing and it's largely due to the good content that we have on here from our guests. I'm not going to really speak for Kevin and I all that much, but we've had many guests that have been very interesting. We've had great conversations and this has been no, no exception to that. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed it tremendously. We could go on and probably keep talking for hours upon hours, but we won't subject you to that. So, um, we appreciate you so much. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this book coming out. I'm looking forward to be able to help spread the word about it, to get it into as many hands, help get it into as many hands as I can. It's been incredibly helpful for me. I know it's going to be helpful for others. So thank you. Um, Thank you to our listeners and to our audience on YouTube. We appreciate you all. Please subscribe. If you appreciate what we're doing here, give us a five-star review on iTunes. Yeah. Click the little bell, the little thing. It's like down here over here. I don't know where it is, but (laughs) click it. Um, Like us, uh, join us on Facebook. You can like our Facebook page, join our discussion board. We have a discussion group that we keep an eye on. We moderate to make sure that we don't have any nonsense or toxicity in there. It's a great open forum. We have lots of good conversations that go on. We would invite all of you to join us there as well. If you have any questions or concerns, drop us a line. We love hearing from our audience. We try to answer everybody. We don't always succeed. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time before we get to you, but we love to hear from our listeners, whether you appreciate what we're doing, whether you like it, whether you don't, whatever the case may be, we want to hear from you. Thank you all so much. We love you all and have a great night.